From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. I really feel that marketers have to put the customer focus first, and that's all about value creation. But that notion of, of making it count, making every opportunity count, making every relationship count is probably the biggest thing. Chris Pick is the CMO of Tanium. He and I have known each other for many years. So not too long ago, I reached out to him to see if he'd be open to facilitating a CMO roundtable that I was organizing. Of course he said yes, and then he asked me if I wanted him to prepare any thoughts. I said, Chris, look, I know you're busy, I love an opener, but if you don't have time for it, don't worry. To this day, I remember Chris's opener. The most incisive and compact breakdown on the state of the macro economy, the state of the tech industry, and the state of his own business that I'd heard in years. To be honest, I wasn't really surprised. Chris always brings his A-game. He's a visionary who excels at connecting that vision to the tactics that shape reality. During our interview, Chris is going to provide the best playbook for category creation that I've come across. But he'll also take us on his own personal journey as a leader and how he learned not only to hatch bold new ideas, but also to inspire and motivate countless individuals to get personally invested in those ideas. Let's jump into the conversation. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin. It's great to be here. All right, Chris, I have interviewed a lot of folks in my day. I can't say that I've ever interviewed someone who's actually driven a tank until I interviewed you. So we definitely have to start there. What is the story with driving a tank? I was really interested when I was young to do things that were adventurous. I actually initially wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. And so for me, the next best thing was um, was to be an officer in in the cavalry. Now, okay, I'm Canadian, you know that. So uh, we we were driving. I was going to bust you on that one, Chris. <laughs> I was right there. Yeah, you, you let it out. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So we so yes, we had rubber bands as weapons. What can I say? Right. We threw <laughs> threw pine cones and and maple syrup on people so they couldn't move. But. Um, <laughs> No, it was awesome. I, you know, I, I went, I went through uh, high school with really wanting focus and adventure, and and coming out of high school and entering into uh, reserved army officer training corps was a little bit of a dream for me. And yeah, so there, there you go. I, I was uh, several years in in the Armor Corps, Justin, and and I love to drive tanks. So you were training to become an officer. What kind of an officer were you? Did you get any feedback on that? You know, the interesting thing about when I when I entered into the military, I I, I had a lot of drive, and and it's a great question because I learned a ton. We we did training every, every summer for four summers, and in the first three summers, that drive it it really drove me to actually be the top candidate in 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 the class. So you have to you start with infantry training. The second summer is the theory of gunnery, right? Where you're learning how to basically use artillery. Third summer was you drive one tank. And in all three of those, you can be an individual contributor. I topped it. Uh, 
And probably the biggest learning that I had is in the fourth year, when you're actually doing the course that teaches you how to become a second lieutenant, I came in dead last. And the story behind that is I, I couldn't stop leading uh, any, anywhere that I was. And it got to the point where I didn't really understand how to follow. And there was this one time when I had a non-commissioned officer who was the trainer. We were in a tank. There's four troops uh, or four tanks in a troop. And, um, and in the lead tank, you basically are the officer. You're supposed to do it. And then there's a, you know, a second tank, a third tank, and a fourth tank. And you get more junior. Well, I was in that most junior tank and still barking out orders. And I had that non-commissioned officer turn to me and say, Mr. Pick, you're not a good officer. And from that moment on, there was a lesson in being a follower and learning how to follow and learning how to listen. That That's the biggest thing, Justin, that I, I learned at a very early age. Now, Chris, we've known each other for a long time. One thing I know about you is you are always the consummate gentleman, even, even and, and I guess in this case, when you're under fire, I just can imagine the way that you're barking out order, orders, but the decorum that you're probably using when you're when you're sharing those. Well, hey, it's it it's the military, so I'm leaving the expletives off here so that your audience doesn't get offended, right? So, so yeah, thank thanks for just uh, just just working with me there. <laughs> All right, so clearly there is this innate drive that you have to be a leader, and that's something that you're born with. I'm intrigued, though, to know how much of that was nature and how much of it was nurture and the influences that surrounded you up until then. Yeah, I think it's a combination for me. And actually, as I talk to a lot of leaders, I think it's uh, it typically is the uh, the military was a formative piece. That was certainly um, the the nurture side of this that I, that I learned, just the falling forward of screwing up. Right. And. But but the nature side, very interesting. I, I grew up in uh, in Canada, as I mentioned. I had um, a mother who was the matriarch of the family, but she was a wonderful woman. Um, she actually just died about uh, a year and a half ago. She she was a a nurse in the '60s uh, that went on to have a family in the '60s. Think of that. Had two boys and decided to go back to to nursing. And then, and to do then a master's of education. And people thought at that time that you couldn't have a career and still be a great parent, that your kids would be developmentally challenged. So I, I, I think my brother and I, we turned out okay, but she, she, was, um, she went on to that to um, lead a nursing school, then to run patient services for one hospital, lead that one hospital. And then by the end of her career, she had a $2 billion budget in, in Calgary running five hospitals. It was just unbelievable. And she was the formative other aspect of my life in the role model and the mentor for me in, in many ways. And still to this day, a lot of the, the things that made her really um, an incredible executive, um, I, I have learned, right? So anyway, I'd say, I'd say that's the balance, right? That's the, that's the nature and the nurture side and call it the first 20, 22 years. Well, over the course of our discussion, we'll come back to this theme again and again, the leadership 
qualities, the bold thinking. It sounds like you grew up in a home where that was modeled for you, particularly with your mother. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about it. Yeah. And she, you know what? She was great with people. Um, it wasn't actually until she, she died and I was in charge of doing both the services that we did for her that I, I learned the stories and really internalized it. But that at, at her professional, um, uh, funeral where all, where all people came, scores of nurses came out and, and just the legacy was really there. And anyway, it's, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it was, I was awestruck. Just sounds like a special moment. All right. So you ever emerged from the military intact, moved into your professional career, started off at Chevron doing survey work. And as I think about survey work, I can't think of a more bucolic, experience, low risk, you're out there doing whatever surveyors do. I'm not exactly sure what they do, to be honest. But you had a formative experience as part of that. Can you share what happened? Yeah, well, you know the story. You and I have known each other for uh, for many years. But that this was the first summer after the military. I had a uh, opportunity to do a civilian job. I wasn't through my university yet. But I took a job as a surveyor, as you said. I was six days on the job in... Um, right up by the Alaska bo- uh, border. And we were surveying basically a geophysical cut line where they were thinking of drilling for natural gas. And I turned around, as crazy as I, as I, as I think about the moment right now, you know, picture yourself on the very top of a mountain, uh, no trees, just juniper bushes everywhere. And I, and I turned around and a grizzly bear was just running right at me. And nowhere to run, uh, certainly nowhere to climb. I I hit, I just hit the ground, put my hands over my head, and the bear was on me in seconds. And I mean, the short story of it was I was pretty badly mauled. I I thought in the moment either I was going to die or that I would be pretty significantly disfigured. But but it lasted for you know a good minute and a half. Um, at the end, the bear had left me, and I was able to to get up. And I was bleeding pretty badly from the head and the shoulders, and and um, went back over to where it originally happened, and found my radio and called for help. And we were helicoptered in, and a helicopter came about five minutes later, and took me to safety. But yeah, that's. That's the uh, the first job. Uh, my job record's not shaping up to be so good at this point. Hey, Justin. So the the bear has literally grabbed you by the shoulders, gone after your head. You're bleeding. What was your state of mind in that moment after the bear had left, when you knew that you were on the brink of dying and you had to you had to get out? Where where, where were you psychologically? You know, it's it's funny. I think in a in a moment like this, anyone who's lived through a, a trauma, um, I didn't feel the pain. And, and, it, and it wasn't until uh, probably hours after that, uh, that I went into shock. But I remember when, when the helicopter dropped two people off, I was actually joking with them, right, to light, lighten the mood. I could see the look on their face. But I did feel that... Um, when it initially happened that this was it. And, and when the bear was biting into me, I thought that would be, that would be it. Let the, let, let the next bite take me out. 
And I'm very lucky, I'd say this in retrospect, I'm very lucky to be alive. It very much was the crucible moment in my life, the moment where everything came to a head. And from there, everything became about the importance and purpose that I, I wanted to do. So I, I hope that answers your question, but that's, that's how I thought in the moment. So you went from that moment, eventually uh, decided to change your profession, I guess. <laughs> not, not, not interested in pursuing that line of work anymore. How did you transition into technology from there? Yeah, it, uh, that's why you're laughing is it, it, what I was studying in school was history. And, and, so, and, and it's, it's, it's good that the bear happened. I, I probably would have been, you know, a history professor in some, you know, secondary school up in Canada. But um, I was six weeks in the hospital. And then after that, I had a six month recovery at, uh, at my, my parents' house. And my, my father he thought I was sitting around way too much. And he actually, he bought me this Raven notebook and this thing was a brick. It, it literally was, it was as, as wide as a brick and it, and it was like, almost like a yellow pages. It was huge, but he, 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 uh, he gave me the opportunity to learn coding. And, and I, and I did, I actually learned uh, SQL and in particular uh, Oracle's uh, PLSQL and I got pretty good at it uh, from the perspective of just learning that. And and probably about a year after the mauling, I was um, in my first job. And ironically, it was actually at the hospital where, where I had my, my treatment. And I ended up in the finance and the IT department. This is crazy. Doing activity-based costing and budgeting and to help the Canadian healthcare system build hospitals. But I got into technology that way, and it was because of that moment. Uh, and again, I'm grateful because it got me into technology. They say that history pivots on a razor's edge, and it's fascinating the way your life took a complete 180 as a result of that. So eventually, you make your way to Ernst & Young. I want to talk a few minutes about Ernst & Young. You work with some incredible people there, but this is where the bold thinking really starts to come through for the first time. So maybe as a starting point, tell us a little bit about what you were hired to do, who you worked with, and then we'll get into some of those bold moves that you made. Yeah, when when I left uh, healthcare, um, the projects that I was managing were super complicated. And I think what many people realized was that they needed a communicator that could simplify them down. And I just had a natural skill for that. And uh, we did a couple projects where security and privacy of patient records uh, brought in Ernst and Young, and and this was this was early '90s, so the internet was just coming along, and they 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 wanted to develop this capability, and so they decided to be one of the formation uh, core members of the Canadian Emergency Response Team, and they actually hired me to do that job, and so I let I led that in the very early days in in Canada, helping them build their enterprise security practice. And then that, that lasted um, months because the U.S. firm was building the same capability in just in all, in all places, Kansas City, Kansas City. You would, have, you would have thought this might have come out of California, you know, or like East Coast, right, or even D.C., but in Kansas City. And I, I had this chance to go down there and work for just some amazing people. I worked for a guy, his name was John Darbyshire who uh, was an incredible visionary uh, in 
in the practice as well was George Kurtz. Uh, in the practice was Stuart McClure. Uh, in in the practice was uh, Lisa Slosher. And and if you know those names, you'll know that John went on to for, uh, found Archer Security. George is currently the CEO of CrowdStrike. And Stuart McClure uh, was the CEO of Silence. And Lisa went on to be the deputy CIO of the U.S. government for years. So it it was probably the, the best training ground for entrepreneurship that I could ever have. And, and really with that was the, the notion of taking risks and making very bold, bold moves. And we did a lot of that in the formative years of creating Ernst & Young security practice. Well, what an exciting time. The internet is just coming on the scene. This idea of security is nascent, but clearly... Uh, a gold mine and, and mission critical for companies. You did some unorthodox things there, came up with some pretty bold ideas. I want to talk a little bit about Tattoo Man. Who was Tattoo Man and how does this fit into the story? Okay, well, I, I give you another one. Um, you got to close your eyes. Ima imagine someone who has tattoos over the majority of their body. Well, I mean, we we hired we hired this this gentleman. I'll leave his name out, but his his handle was Tattoo Man, and and this was you're right, completely unorthodox. Uh, when you think of Y, you think of probably blue suits and ties, and we were building the practice, so we needed people who were great technicians and were ethical, but knew computer security. And we had learned of a, uh, a tool site that was um, distributing tools to White Hat community. And we didn't know who it was. We just knew that it was Tattoo Man's site. And so we socially engineered how to find his name. I ended up talking to his mother to, to then find out you know, his phone number, called him up and said, we're really interested in meeting you um, on Monday of next week. Will you come into Kansas City? And so he showed up and like you would think, he showed up with his sleeves rolled up saying, this is me. This, this is me, man. I mean, take it or leave it. And we took it. We, um, we hired him. It was a, a move that the partners hadn't seen before, but again, was super critical in, in, in just moving forward. So two takeaways for me from that story. Number one, even Tattoo Man has a mother. Never forget that. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Number two, when you want the best, you find the best and you don't you don't try to fit them into a preconceived mold. And I think that's so important in business. Too many times we have blinders on and we walk past the best talent because we expect the talent to look or act uh, a certain way. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And, and I'd say I, I, I learned at that, that moment uh, the, the importance of understanding that you need people with core foundational capabilities, but you also got to have people that are cultural fit. And, and for me, regardless of how someone looks, the diversity of, a, of an individual, whatever it might be, um, that, that was a great lesson learned at that moment. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. 
So you went on, had a great run at some other companies, but I wanted to spend a few moments at Aptio. What I'm intrigued about at Aptio, you were there for almost a decade and you got in early. And by the time you left, that company was worth about $2 billion. So an incredible run. You saw all the phases though. And I'd love for you to walk us through what were the phases that Aptio went through? And as the CMO, how did you usher them through those phases? Yeah, so I was connected uh, to Aptio through uh, Ben Horowitz and, and the Andreessen Horowitz team. I had, I had met them um, about a year previous, and they were making their very first investment from their limited partners into Aptio. And so I, I had the opportunity to be connected uh, from them to uh, Sunny Gupta, who is the CEO of still Aptio today and is an amazing friend. What Aptio did is Aptio had a technology that was really about understanding the cost, quality, and value of IT investments. And actually, not all that sexy, right? IT financial management when, when I arrived on the scene. So what, what do we need to do? We need to up-level that. And, and that's, that was the category play. So the, the thesis was very much around that. How do we mobilize and build a community around advocates that would believe in that? So that, that was the play. And um, I inherited 10 amazing um, CIOs as part of our uh, customer advisory board. And these were people like Don Duet, the CIO of Goldman Sachs, Becky Jacoby, the CIO of Cisco, Tim Campos at that time, the CIO of Facebook, like known brands that, that had believed in, in this capability that Aptio had. And so the first thing that we did is we thought through the barrier of how can we tell the story of them at scale and use them as the best advocates to do that, while their corporate communication departments were really concerned about you know, how, how they would do that for a vendor they had heard nothing about. So we, um, what we ended up doing at the beginning in this thesis was filming them, putting their stories on iPads. We, we built an, uh, an app for the iPad and we shipped these iPads out to uh, other CIOs when they opened that iPad up, they got the evangelism right from these CIOs. And that, that mechanism probably was, again, big risk, right? Bold move, but, and direct mail, think of that. And, um, but it was the best converting campaign that at this time I had ever done. We converted uh, to an opportunity. It was about 36% conversion. It was unbelievable. So that was the first part of it, Justin. And it was just a story about using the power of advocacy in a way that was innovative and, and, uh, and direct. So you start off and you essentially credentialize what it is that the business is doing. And then from there, you see that there's this opportunity. Where, how did you take that to the next level? So we, we felt like we were shooting fish in, in the barrel, so to speak, at, at this point. And we went to the board and said, okay, well, here's, here's an idea. Imagine for a minute, so we're a high growth, you know, venture back company. We're burning cash. Imagine if we create a nonprofit organization. Just imagine that. And, uh, and I remember the, the board. I remember Sonny's face. Uh, they, they thought I was crazy. Uh, but they thought about it for about a week. And, and Sonny and I then talked through some of the, the intricacies of it. And ultimately, uh, 
agreed with the risk and agreed with the movement. So what we did is we, we created a nonprofit organization with the purpose of building collaboration through peers, using that collaboration to educate the market. We wrote a book, we published so much uh, uh, material in the industry. And then ultimately what we did is we, we built a standard out there. Today, that organization still has uh, 10,000 members, uh, generates revenue, and has been uh, now turned into law at the US federal government and several states. So it, it was just an incredible way of mobilizing, again, the, the advocates on your behalf and then figuring out how to make that your commercial strategy for awareness and demand for Aptio's brand. And, and that that was a labor of love, but it ultimately was one of the things that got, got us to become a public company. And then ultimately, as you mentioned, uh, the acquisition of Vista Equity in December of uh, 2019. So, and ultimately that became the Technology Business Management Council, the TBM Council that you created. There were a number of fascinating moves and and you kind of humbly gloss over them, but I just want to call out what, what I think were were brilliant strokes of from a marketing perspective. You came in and first of all inherited something very boring, which was IT financial management. Who's going to get excited about that? You had this asset, which was you had some people that were believing in it. But the challenge is how do you parlay that into something that resonates with CIOs across the globe. And so step one is you get you get these advocates talking about you, but then you face a very big challenge, which is how do we go from people talking about us as a vendor to really starting a movement? And I think that inflection point is kind of the brilliance of this whole thing, how you started a movement rather than just having people talk about Aptio. Well, it, the, the other big lesson is that as a marketer, I'll, I'll just tell you this. I hate fluff. Uh, you and I have talked about it, right? We get upwards to 150 emails every day. And, you know, look, um, it's part of the job. But what I've found to be far more impactful is to create value and teach your teams about, about value creation. The, the lesson here through the decade at, at Aptio, which, of course, gives me clarity on the future is value creation and how you approach these things in a way that truly puts your customer's mission first and puts them in a position where they can actually use it in a way that is sustaining. So that's that's the big lesson, right, about the, the Technology Business Management Council and standard creation and ultimately the success of, of Appio happened as a result of that value creation and mission coming first. So many times you hear companies talk about the need to create value for their communities, but that is just kind of a talk track. People aren't really willing to back it up with action, with, with funding. Your bold move here is, number one, you, you let go. You started a nonprofit that was not branded with Aptio's name, but Aptio actually put a lot of money into that and you put a lot of resources into that. You were willing, willing to back that up. And I think that was another bold move that ultimately paid off. Yeah, think of it this way. The, the decision was, would you take 25% of your demand gen budget at the formative years of a company and, and push that into thought leadership and, and awareness? That, that was the decision at the time, right? So you're absolutely right. L long term, you've got to be committed to it and you have to 
you got to think of this like game theory. And it's important that the entire executive team is with you. And if you don't have it, it will be treated like a campaign. It will be treated as fluff. And that's that, again, is the lesson here. The other thing you mentioned is the body of work that everyone collaborated on. You literally, the board literally wrote a book. And I remember some of these sessions where the board would get together. They'd be kind of in a swanky place, maybe in Napa. But these were not sessions where people would kick back and enjoy the spa. I mean, people would get in a room and hammer out frameworks and debate points. And there was a writer there and there was iteration. And what was produced from this was a real book that was different than anything else that existed in the marketplace. Yeah. And and all all of the thought around that as a as a discipline we are creating, we always had product marketing. We always had our product team there to learn and really understand how we could take the education or really the standards and instantiate the standard itself into the product. And that that that's the key, right? That's the key to why why you would do that is you then become the first mover in a category where you've shaped it, you've created the playing field that you again can give give you that unfair advantage. And that's why it needs to be uh, you know so ingrained into into marketing and into the product organization. One of the other topics I wanted to explore here, there's a fascinating dilemma that you found yourself in in that you, Aptio is obviously a for-profit company. You're looking to generate demand for your services. You have the TBM Council, which is a nonprofit looking to serve the needs of all of the community. How did you balance the commercial interests of Aptio with the non-commercial interests of the TBM Council and make sure that that mission stayed pristine while you were still true to your responsibilities as the CMO? Yeah, I, I think num- number one, I, I always knew that my, my paycheck and my team's paycheck came from Aptio. So that uh, was the, the, the main driving force for thinking through long-term how, how we could create value from that, right? And, and what that would do for our own ability to drive growth in the company. But, um, but we, we viewed it as, you know, if it, if it got to a stage, and this is back now in 2012, if it got to a stage where other partners wanted to be in this fold, Partners should also contribute to the development of the nonprofit. So it actually became at, at its at its height under me about a five million dollar revenue center on the back of contributions from partners that wanted to get in, contribute to the, the standard, contribute to the body of knowledge and have the thought leadership and have access to the execs that were, were part of it. So that was the balance that I needed to then go back to. Aptio's leadership team and say, great, we are in the first mover. We run a category. That category is going to fill our thought leadership objectives. It's going to fill our competitive side of this. Uh, Aptio, by the time I left, had about an 83% competitive uh, win rate. So it was instrumental to use that in top of funnel, mid funnel to help our champions at, at our prospect accounts really say, look, these are the founders of the TBM Council. So the, all those became then objective measurements, right, that we would go back to, to go back to the, is the CMO doing his job right, right, on, on top of this other thing that he does in running a nonprofit. So that was the balance, right? Revenue, cost, and then showing the contribution to the overall, you know, opportunity and demand generation that the company wanted me to do. It's a tremendous testament to this virtual cycle that's created when companies truly are willing to get behind a cause that that other companies value. 
And if you're focused on creating value and you're transparent about what you're doing, everybody benefits in the end as a result of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I should say, you know, Intel gave me the idea. Intel had something in the early, early years, something called the Open Data Center Alliance, and it lasted for about a year. But, but they formed it as a nonprofit. And since Aptio, I, I think the TBM Council now, there's probably six to seven variants that are out there with that same model. So it's, it, it is, um, it's become something of a little bit of a cult classic now, right, of how you could do category <laughs> creation via a yeah. nonprofit. Yeah. There's another dimension to your experience at Aptio that I wanted to explore. You are, at your core, a strategy guy. I don't think, Chris, I've ever talked to anyone that uses the word thesis more in a conversation than you do. You always have a thesis. You're always proven a hypothesis. You are strategy driven, though. And that has obviously served you well in your career. That said, you came to the, the seat of CMO at Aptio not having a lot of experience with brand, with demand generation, with external comms. How did you bridge that gap between what was needed for the role and the experience that you brought to it? Yeah, I think that's an easy answer. It, it's about hiring great people and, and recognizing that, that uh, no leader can drive growth, no leader can drive transformation without an incredible team that um, is, is willing to do the work. And, you know, Justin, I, I recognize this in, in myself that um, I, I, I approach work with very much a I'm all in. And I need people that, that are part of my team to really also understand that as well. But I recognize that I, I don't know the answers to a lot of things. I think about digital, right? Digital is a great example. The tech is changing all the time. So I want to find people who can exploit the latest changes, but yet can work in a team environment where, you know, the culture is one that everybody's in it together, right? There's a one team, one fight mentality. So that, that's it. You're right. I learned demand gen at Aptio by bringing in the best people, you know, to structure SDR teams and to build a MarTech stack and think about how we were going to become the biggest distributor of iPads in, in North America, things like that, that had never been done before. But at the heart of it, it's about, it's about people and people's desire to work for you and you just hire the best. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. All right, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about Tanium. You're CMO at Tanium now. First of all, what does Tanium do? Well, Tanium is a uh, endpoint platform that manages the life cycle of really anything with a chip in it. So just think about it. Like these are your servers. These are your desktops. These are uh, containers that exist in, in the cloud and SaaS applications. They're your mobile phones. They're, they're IoT related devices. So anything with a chip in it, Tanium's job is to discover it, is to really actively help organizations manage it, and then to secure it. This company has been around since about uh, 2007, and we're, we're a company that's got well over 500 uh, customers that we focused on the biggest of the big customers. So, for example, our, uh, we, we secure and manage uh, the entire Department of Defense for the U.S. So it gives you kind of a relative profile of, of what we do. So significantly larger, both in the, the size of the customers you're serving, the revenue that you're generating than, than Aptio was. 
what experiences in your past career per- prepared you for this and what adaptations have you had to make based on the unique challenges? Yeah, well, ev- every experience, I think in a very self-deprecating way, every every uh, every fall forward that I've, I've took in the past it was hugely beneficial to Tanium. And you're right, it's scale magnitude much bigger, growth much larger. Uh, it's a profitable company too, so it, it's it's kind of a unicorn onto itself. So I was introduced to Tanium by again Ben Horowitz and and the recruiting partner at Andreessen Horowitz, Jeff Stump, good friend of mine, and they presented a number of different companies in their portfolio after after the Aptio experience for me. And I was introduced to the CEO Orion Hindawi, and this was uh, late last year. I came up to Seattle. We had lunch together. And I was uh, suitably impressed by the vision to really, you know, discover and manage anything with a chip in it. And think of the time frame. First of all, this was pre-COVID. Uh, we hadn't gone through any of the things, and I was just evaluating, like, what's the market for endpoint management going to be? First of all, this year, how many endpoints exist in the world? So, just from that perspective, I met with Orion, talked with him about his his plans for growth. And really saw that that there was a tremendous uh, product market fit for us in the market today, but the ability to move down market. So, so that's that was the decision, the uh, the the calculus of that. So back to the thesis, then Justin, using that word again, what I had to do was convince myself uh, I would I would be the fourth CMO. Why did the other CMOs not? not um, have success in a very engineering centric culture. So that process took about two and a half months to look at the market, to do diligence on the customer base. And what I found was an incredible product that is beloved by their customers and a culture of people where clearly when they say culture trumps strategy, I, I believe that existed. So that was it. The thesis was really about how I could work and build predictable demand and, and move Tanium down market and expand geographically. So you're starting to get into this, but I'd love to delve a little bit more deeply into what your playbook is when you come into a new company. How do you assess the lay of the land? And then what are the first moves you make to establish your own marketing organization? Well, look, the first thing as it relates to Tanium is I had a, a, a partner in the chief revenue officer who just started about two months prior to me. Uh, and he's an amazing individual. His name is Thomas Stanley. We we talked pretty extensively through the process and realized that what we had to do was a cultural change around creating a connected commercial organization in, in this culture that had a product that was built by great engineers and it kind of sold itself. So the the playbook was really around, um, I'd say probably four, four things. And, and it's the advice I give a lot of other CMOs. I said, number one is when you're, when you're looking at, at this type of thing, you have to have the vision and a thesis for what you're gonna do differently. And that then creates the plan that, that you're gonna share. And typically the way that I approach that is I'll create a two-year plan and then de-evolve it down into quarterly priorities that we gotta solve. So that's the first thing, right? And that gives the common stump speech the ability for you to to move forward. The second thing really is then you create a B2B uh, marketing operating model. This is your lingua franca of who 
needs to be on the team between the classic functions of product marketing and demand and brand, all those things. But but you've got to educate the rest of the company about what uh, what what it is. And so that's the people and the process side uh, of this. And then it's all about um, them mobilizing to hire, to coach, to train the team. And I think that that probably is the, the biggest thing that I spend my time on here as I think about the differences between where I started and where we are right now is I wake up for my team every day and I think about how, how to develop those managers, how they fit into this um, operating model and how they're executing against, against the plan. So look, those are the high level things that I'm a big believer in. And it does come back down to just running the playbook, honing and maturing your playbook as you move forward. You mentioned that you like to put together a two-year view on the business, a two-year strategy. How do you build a two-year strategy on the business when the world is evolving so quickly, particularly in tech? Yeah, I mean, it's and 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 particularly over, over uh, the Corona uh, virus crisis, right? How do you even plan plan for that? You know, I think. Um, you got to inspire people and and you've got to bring people along uh, on the way. Look, this is an 80-20 rule, right? Where you might execute 80% of that plan over time. But I think where many many um, executives fail is they fail to de-evolve that plan into something that is really measurable. So that two-year vision I, I mentioned, it, it comes down to quarters and it, then it actually comes down to months and it comes down to what we do in the week. And there is just an operational discipline there that that is really important. So what what the dashboard looks like for for us weekly is we have a meeting every every Monday morning, and that's all about uh, we call it the M three. It's the marketing managers meeting, and that's all about pipeline performance. It's the operational cadence of running the business, hitting on those things that are so important for you know just the growth of the business. We then have a meeting kind of midweek, which is all around uh, people and and how we uh, against, you know, hiring against our plan and, you know, where do we need to focus on people related initiatives. And then lastly, we have a meeting that is all about projects and or work stream projects being defined by months and work streams that might be changing the business on a quarterly basis. So so though the discipline of de-evolving that plan to you know, focus on what you can deliver because we all live in a very scarce environment with resources is just about that relentless prioritization. So I, I, I hope I hope that your listeners can interpret that to say you don't just you don't just have the vision. You've got to figure out that you you've got to put people on it to cover it off and, and to get them focused. And I love the balance that you've been able to strike between the operating metrics of the business and really focusing on that, but also creating a space where people can come and problem solve together and kind of blue sky it. I know COVID has presented challenges to many, but it's also created opportunities. Your team has done a spectacular job of responding and innovating. Can you talk a little bit about some of the new ideas that this cadence that you've just described have unlocked with respect to COVID? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the work streams that we ran in in March was a work stream called Virtual X. We called it Virtual X because we didn't know what would come out of this thing, but it but it but it literally was a, a you know a, a focus of how we pivot physical events into into virtual. And 
And that was a three-month work stream that had deliverables pretty much every week, right? Because we were figuring it out just like everybody else, right? What to do? How quickly should we begin prospecting? Should we chase the ambulances with, you know, uh, messaging out there? We've all heard the stories, right? So Virtual X, you know, at the end, it was pretty interesting. We developed a an event hierarchy, right? We we uh, created a understanding of a borderless effect, right? Because when it's virtual, but it's yet produced in a region, every region can have access to it, right? So how many times do you hit the personas in your target and your served market? So, you know, how do you interlock between field marketing and corporate? Uh, what I could say at the, at the end of the, kind of the experience, because I think we've learn so much over the last year about it is, Justin, probably like you, it's made us better. It, it has changed forever, I think, the field marketing and the way that field marketing is viewed by regional salespeople. And it truly is that con, con, constraints, right? Constraints drive these creativities. And I, I don't see us going back to a, to a, a day when we actually are doing things very antiquated. We're going to be, you know, very much focused around, you know, these things moving forward that give us a ton of productivity and optimization. So we've covered the vision. We've covered the operating cadence. You also talked about the importance of finding great people, developing great people. You and I are both big fans of the book Who by Jeff Smart. No better book out there in terms of being able to size talent up and bring the right people into your organization what other thoughts have you got around just finding great talent, but also retaining them by challenging and stretching them? Yeah. It, um, you know, I, I look at the leaders on my team, you know, you're back to who for a second, right? We actually took that book and, and made it really a leadership mandate on, on the team. And so the leaders should define the core capabilities, right? As we look for talent and we did that exercise. We actually went through and we said, what are the core cap capabilities? Things like adaptability, right? How, like, how do people operate? Given coronavirus, that was a huge thing. Um, taking feedback, you know, and being creative, being curious, all, all those things. So we, we look for that in, in our leaders today. And, and I think things like uh, curiosity, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, uh, told my story, the risk-taking aspect of that, uh, learning from mistakes, being self-actualized, humility are, are really core things. So that came out of that. And I, and I feel like the way that we are now moving that forward is make every manager in the organization, they, they have to make that their responsibility in our culture to then move that to the next level. So that's that cultural transformation we're on right now. And Boy, I'll tell you, I, I'm a big believer in, in, in the talent we've got. Um, and I see it that they awaken every day to really understand that, that they take these, these principles like who and, uh, and put it into practice. Well, Chris, we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. Started off with you barking orders from the last tank in the line and ended up here. It's been a great journey. And we really appreciate you taking us with you on that journey. Let me end with one last question. As you look back over the arc of your life, what's that one thing that has made the most difference? Well, I'd say the, the rally cry, Justin, for, for me is the philosophy of making things count. Um, understand that these crucible moments that people can have 
can either dive you or they can drive you. And I know that everybody has a crucible moment in their background. And I look for that. I want to see people that have that so that they can tap in and they get energy from that. It's motivation. But but that notion of, of making it count, making every opportunity count, ma- making every relationship count is probably the biggest, the biggest thing. And I've said it before that I really feel that marketers have to put the customer focus first. And that's all about value creation. So I think that those two things are really important for me. And hopefully that's, you know, that's come out in the story today. And I just wanted to say to you, um, thank you for the leadership that you've got here. These are great stories of leadership. And I've learned a lot just by, you know, being, being a member in your audience. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.